0: Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the MDE DDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, And tonight we're going to be looking at Mere Christianity again. So we've done one week on an introduction to C.S. Lewis, who is the author of Mere Christianity. And then last week, Grant did a lesson on uh, introduction and book one of Mere Christianity. Tonight we're going to look at what's called book two, or it's also known as What Christians Believe. And so we're going to be looking at the five chapters of book two of mere christianity and i'll be the one that's actually teaching that so there's a lot of really great stuff in this section Uh, there is a discussion on uh, the rival conceptions of god so different ways of looking at god uh, some different alternatives we'll be talking about satan Uh, we'll be talking about kind of in military terms which c.s lewis is always apt to do about how uh, satan has kind of invaded Uh, our world, and we're sort of living in enemy territory. And then we're talking about sort of how Jesus affirms for this, or or should I say, atones for all this. Um, And so he's our perfect penitent, uh, C.S. Lewis calls him. Um, And then a conclusion on that. So a a lot of different things. We're going to be looking at different things that Christians believe. Uh, And what you'll find, I think, is is that what Christians believed in the 1940s largely is is what they believe now. And certainly the, the primary doctrine of it all are the things that are our Again, mere Christianity are the things that Christians still believe today and the things that we should focus on uh, as much as possible. So, I hope you're having a great week. I hope that this is a a great lesson for you, and we're going to jump right into it right now. So, I got to say, I think everyone has kind of said this, but it's very hard to summarize a a, a chapter or a, let's just say, a book of Christianity. Smear Christianity is like multiple books, and so this is a book. This is book two, and it's one of these things where it's almost like when you read a great book or you watch a great film, and someone's like, well, how was it? And you're like, you just got to see it. And I sort of feel like that's the case with this book. It's like you kind of just need to read it. And so if you are reading along, like this will be maybe good for you because you're going to hear like, you know, kind of allusions to things you read. But some of it's just like, man, I just feel like I should read the book. It Literally, I think like the audio book is like right at 50 minutes for this. And I'm probably going to talk for 50 minutes, which is like a big shame because I should just probably like play it and just, you know, pretend like I'm talking or something. But um, we'll do our best to kind of get through it. And then you'll have this sheet that's a summary of it. And so uh, we'll see how how that goes. But a lot of really good stuff and stuff I wish I had more time to uh, discuss, but such is life. So there are five chapters of this book. And so each of those, we got the rival conceptions of God, the invasion, the shocking alternative, the perfect penitent. Uh, and then the the practical conclusion. So we're going to start with the rival conceptions of God. And so this is literally like what Christians believe. So this is Lewis's attempt at trying to speak to people all throughout London and beyond as to what do Christians believe. Uh, So he starts kind of like at the very base of that. And so um, I would say, and he says that if you're a Christian, you don't have to believe that all other religions are entirely wrong. I think that's kind of um, a statement that can be taken in a bad way to say like, well, we all have truth, and you know, no truth is better than any other truth. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but what I am saying is, is that even the strangest religions have a hint of truth in them. We talked about this with false doctrines, and Dave was talking about false gospels. And you know, these gospels that we would say are false gospels and they're untrue, we don't mean to say that 100% of it's untrue. You know, it's not to say that you know, if 100% of something was untrue, like nobody would believe it. It wouldn't feel real Um, And so, you know, it might be that 3% of it is untrue or 16%, but uh, there's a portion that's untrue. I've heard it said once uh, that, you know, all truth is God's truth. And so if you find truth in another religion, it's not to say that that's not God's truth. It's just maybe being kind of used in a different way or kind of misused, or it's being kind of put on the same level as other things that aren't true. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Well, what we would say, and this is a blank, is that we believe Christianity is right, right? OK. And so you could say it's sort of like an arithmetic problem. And so if you're a math teacher, uh, somebody, you know, they might work through a problem and you're like, ah, I see what you're trying to do there. But that's not the right answer. Or maybe you got the right answer, but you didn't you didn't get there the right way. And so then you get partial credit, you know. Um, and so that's what we say when we mean that, that Christianity is, is right. We believe it's, it's correct. OK. And so if you believe Christianity is as it says, you know, through the Bible what it is, You have to say it's right, and in the same way you have to say things are wrong. But that doesn't mean that there aren't truths in other uh, religions. Um, And so when we look at other religions, we could say that the majority of religions believe in a god or gods. So we have that in common, the vast majority of religions. And so Christianity, in this sense, it's going to line up with a lot. So we look at ancient Greeks, Romans. They all believed in gods. We know that. We look at, like, modern savages. He calls them, like, developing nations where you find, like, Hey, there's these people in Brazil that have like never seen other people. Like they have beliefs in gods, and they're different, but they believe in gods. Um, we've got, man, Stoics, Platonists, uh, Hindus, what he calls Mohammedans, Muslims, etc., etc. Um, those who would not believe in a god would be what he calls modern Western European materialists. So at the time, we would call now like secularists or just atheists or agnostics or whatever you want to say, right? They wouldn't believe in a god. If you believe in a God, you can kind of split it up a little bit further. We've got a couple uh, groups here. We've got monotheists, which literally means one God. So Jews, Christians, Muslims. um, And then you've got pantheists, which pan just means many. We know that. uh, And so pantheists, that would be your first blank. So pantheists would say that uh, God is beyond good and evil. They'd also say this is kind of a fine line to strike between monotheism and pantheism, but go with me here. But... God animates everything in the universe, meaning everything, including us, in some sense, is God. So God is in this, you know, whatever, this coffee table. He's in the sofa. He's in the air. He's in you. He's in me. Uh, George Harrison was really into this, so within you, without you. It was like a Beatles song. Anyway, like this this idea that, like, God is sort of flowing and God is you, God is me, or whatever. I think you're familiar with that. Um, There's also this idea in pantheism that if the universe didn't exist... Um, neither would God And since God is in every part of the universe He's not separate from good or evil Okay So now if you're, you, know, you want to argue the fine details of pantheism with me That's fine But I think generally that's, that's true of pantheism Okay, on the other hand, monotheism So your blank would be monotheists They would believe that God invented and made the universe um, And it's like a man making a picture or composing a tune so it's a little bit different than being actually being the universe. This is the thing where God creates the universe. He sets it into motion. Um, and so when you think about that painter and a picture analogy, um, a painter is not the picture, right? And if you destroy the picture, the painter does not die, okay? Which I think is a good way of thinking about that. If a musician composes a piece, it might represent him in some sense, but if that is completely destroyed and he can't remember how he played it or how he wrote it, it doesn't change the fact that he's still the composer. Um, now, we talked about, and so this is kind of confusing, because we talked about in class Sunday uh, on an attribute of God, of God being omnipresent, so meaning that God is present everywhere you know, at all times, and also that he uh, has eminence, meaning that he, is, he emanates all things, that he is in all things, which is confusing, because we just said that pantheists uh, you know, believe that God is in everything, and we would also say that God emanates all things. And so um, there's a fine distinction there that I'm sure a great the- a theologian could explain. Can you explain the difference, my great theologian? Well, I'm,
1: so I'm not a great
0: theologian. <laughs> I
1: certainly didn't know what, we were going to have this question. Um,
0: if you can, it's okay. I can try. Know, but, go on.
1: Maybe I'll give it a shot. And you can tell me where I'm wrong. So God's omnipresence doesn't mean that God is actually... in everything it typically means two things one is that God is aware of what's going on and God is sovereign over what's going on so God's omnipresence means that there's no inch of space in the universe that God doesn't know what's occurring and God is not sovereign over what's occurring and then, so a pantheist would actually think that God's not sovereign over the table but like God is in the table you know and so you you kinda of see like a, like Avatar, the movie Avatar, that that's like that's pantheism, you know, the the, the force, the powers in in nature, in, in creation, as opposed to standing above creation, but being sovereign and being knowledgeable of what's occurring in, in his creation.
0: Yeah. The way that Eric kinda of drew it and obviously like we say this sort of thing a lot, but we're talking about like sort of like a four dimensional concept that we're trying to put into three dimensional terms and so it's one of those sort of like Theological things. It's like I'm gonna do the best I can to explain it, but I'm gonna come up short. He talked about how God is is you could say it's like an ocean, and that our existence is like a bucket that's dipped down into the ocean. And so, God is outside of our existence, but He's also inside of our existence. And uh, but you know even that's sort of like imperfect, you know. Um, But I guess I would say that one big distinction between pantheism and monotheism, which you may not even care. Okay, so we'll 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 move on. But um, is that in the idea of that ocean, God would only be contained within the bucket if he were just that universe, right? So in, in monotheism, he stands outside of that. He doesn't need the bucket to exist, if that makes sense. And so we would say that God's existence is not contingent on the existence of the universe. Okay, God existed before the universe, and he can exist after the universe. Okay, so he's not contingent on that time and that matter and that, and that place. Okay. Um, We'd also say, and this is important, the reason we bring this up, I think is mostly for this reason, is is that uh, we believe that God is separate from the world, and that some of the things that we see in this world are contrary to His will. So God is not responsible. Now, if God is in all things, then in some sense, He's responsible for the evil things directly, because He is in those things, you could say. Um, And we'd also say that God wants to make those things right eventually, and we'll talk about how He's going to do that. All right, so if you're super confused, we are moving on. Um, But I thought there was, I mean, the way that he explains it and and talks about it is really interesting, I think. All right, so moving on to this next point, this is a common question, and here's some blanks. If a good God made the world, how has it gone wrong? So the blanks are good and wrong. Is that there? Okay, good. Had you already guessed those blanks? What what an A student. That's so good. (laughs) How did you know that? Because I, you weren't writing it. I was like, why are you not writing it? I was like, are you confused? He'd already, he's probably guessed them all. What's the next blank, David? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, all right. So uh, is that a, cla- I mean, have you heard that question before? Yeah. yeah. That's like the most common, I think, question of someone that doesn't believe in God, perhaps. Um, and so you can say that no matter how many complicated explanations as Christians that we can give, um, some might say, you know, isn't it just simpler to believe that all this happened by chance and that there is no God? I think that some people in the face of whatever explanation you wanna give are just gonna, you know what, I think it's probably just that, you know what, there is no God, and this all happened by chance. Uh, Lewis's answer would be just simply no. Um, And so he has a couple reasons for why he would say no, and so we'll kinda go down those rabbit holes together. Uh, The first is that if our argument against God is that the universe is cruel and unjust, then that raises the question, well, how have we gotten these ideas about cruelty and justice, okay? I think we talked about some of that last week. But uh, a couple of quotes that I pulled out that he says that I think are great is a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Okay. Uh, if the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be a part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction to it? Okay. and then I like this one. A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. All right. And so what he's getting at is the idea that if something stands out as unfair, or unjust to us, that in and of itself uh, sort of it, it explains that there might be a standard for such a thing as justice or fairness, if that makes sense. Um, and so he, he does a better job of explaining that here in a second. Um, so he's going to kind of harp on that a couple times. And so I would say this is that we feel that things are cruel and unjust because we have a sense of justice and fairness written on our hearts. Um, we have a sense of what is right and wrong. And that points to something beyond us that sets that standard, you could say. And so if our argument is that, well, things aren't fair and things aren't just, well, where do you come by this concept of fairness and justness is what he's saying. All right, so if we admit that our sense of justice is something that is just personal or maybe maybe culturally determined, which would be, I think, like the main construct you know, of, of morality. We would say that, well, this is a it's a social construct and it has evolved sociologically over time and so like behavioral scientists would say, well, what we think of as right and wrong, it has changed and it has evolved and it is now what it is and it's not the same for everyone and it's subjective and we would reject that. But if you say that and you would say then therefore that morality is not objective, then Lewis says that we destroy our own argument, okay? And so what he says to to kind of further that is that our condemnation of God requires us to believe, and this is a blank, uh, It requires us to believe there is a standard out there to which he is not measuring up. But the point of our whole argument was that there is no such thing as that standard. Okay, so if we want to say that God is not good because he allows wrong in the world, then we're saying that he's not measuring up to a standard. But how do we suppose a standard if we think that, think that things are just from chance? Um, And that uh, things are ultimately meaningless we'll get to all right so put another way what we're trying to argue is that the universe is senseless but doing so requires us to believe that our conception of the way things should be is actually full of sense and he says it can be done all right I know this all starts to feel like a fortune cookie but hopefully hopefully you're following there and so here's kind of the, the rub of all this is the implication of this is that there are really only two intellectually consistent ways of behaving in this world. The first, uh, and it feels like we're stack, stacking the deck maybe, but I, I think, I don't know, I, I don't think this is like only something that Lewis would say or only something I would say. I think to some degree this is, this is kind of the way it is. And maybe there's a third way out there I'm not familiar with. But the first way is to live in accordance with the will of God, to say that you know, God created this, this is the way that the world is. And in, in reaction to that, I feel like I'm compelled to act a certain way. Uh, the second is to live a life as laid out by like Nietzsche, um, that is saying that nothing has any meaning. Maybe might makes right, so do whatever you can get away with. Uh, with sorry, so do whatever you can get away with to get as much pleasure for yourself as you possibly can. And if you get tired of being alive, jump off a cliff because nothing has ever mattered or ever will. Um, and I don't know if, if people that even, I mean, we talked about this last week, Jack, and I'm not trying to call you out, but um, and, and I, you know I, there's other people in my life who've kind of been in that place where it's like, I, just, I reject God, and I don't think anything matters, and I, I think this is all just an illusion, or it's who cares. But it's rare that someone would take it to the, the logical extent of, if I'm unhappy right now and I'm depressed and I hate my life, there's really no reason why I shouldn't die. Now, obviously, people, some people get there, but I think most people struggle with that because there's something inside of them that points to either a greater purpose or somehow that doesn't add up. And I don't, I don't know if that's always true, but uh, I, I think that's definitely, there, there's a, a huge part of someone that's in that place that would feel that way too. Um, and so what Lewis says is this has the mentality of, uh, he says the fingerprints of the adversary is all over it. So he calls, calls the adversary, Satan, and so uh, he, would, he would say that Satan would, would want to push us to think that nothing has meaning and that, uh, you know, all these, these kind of ways of thinking. And so he says that of these two options, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should, and I love this part, is he said that we should never have found out that it has no meaning. So if the whole universe has no meaning, we should have never found out that it has no meaning, just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. Okay, so I love that last part. Let's kind of do this, and I know we're like on the thing, but I I wouldn't worry about it Um, because each section is kind of like pretty dense. What about this section kind of like stands out to you? Do you buy these arguments? Do you not buy these arguments? What I can actually do is I can just pause it when we get to these sections, so then you don't have to worry about that. So moving on to uh, the invasion. And that was great, what David just shared. Um, so according to Lewis, and, and these are things he's saying, and so sometimes I feel like I'm speaking on his behalf, let's say, uh, but he says atheism is too easy, it's too simple. And so if there's an atheist that's out there listening to this, that may be very offensive to you, and I'm sorry. Um, and so let's unpack what he means by that. Um, in some sense, you could say atheism is a belief that nothing exists that I can't observe. So the word there is observe. As well, obviously, if you're the atheist that's out there listening, you would say, well, that's not all it is. So I'm not trying to like straw man argument atheism, let's say. But there is some sense in which it's a belief that nothing exists that I can't observe, that I can't prove through science. If I can't prove it through science. And if I can't, you know, run a measurement on God, well, he can't exist. There's some truth to that. Um, I got these notes in part from a guy named Winston, a very smart guy, but he said, This is kinda like a toddler who thinks that he gets hidden because he covers his face with his hands. Okay, so that you know, I have a kid that, you know, they say that babies at a certain point, you know, they if if you cover your face they think you've gone. Or if you leave the room, they think you're gone forever, you know, and they have this like panic. And so you could say that, you know, an atheist who, who believes that only the things that they could observe could be real is sort of like a toddler that covers his hands and thinks that he's hidden. Um, all right, so the truth is, is the real world is com- complicated. So C.S. Lewis spends a lot, a lot of time talking about just sort of like a logical and almost like an aesthetic argument for God based on complexity and simplicity, and so we'll try and get into some of that. Um, he'd say that the real world on the surface is simple, which is sort of like, you know, he talks about, you know, if I look at an apple and someone asks me to describe that, that's a pretty simple process. Like, I look at the apple and it's red. But if you had, like, you know, some expert of the eyes, or the brain explained to you well. In fact, when you look at that apple, you see uh, you know it, it hits this thing and it reverses it and hits this nerve and it you know goes to your brain through these neurons and yada yada yada. So obviously, dentist here, give me a break. Um, but like you know when you've heard those one of those processes, you're like, oh, well, that's not simple anymore. I didn't have any idea. And so things that seem simple on the surface, uh, once you get down into it deeper, it's like, oh my gosh, this is like way more complex than I had ever imagined. Um, and so uh, the, the truth is, that is true of the real world, okay? It can also be true of Christianity, and so I think sometimes an atheist would lob arguments at Christianity that are like basically the theological beliefs of like a six-year-old, okay? And so they want to boil down Christianity to the simplest form, and C.S. Lewis says, but then once you start to give them complicated answers and, and understandings, they say, well, oof, why are you having to complicate things? Like, shouldn't religion be simple? And so it's sort of like this cyclical argument, you could say. Um. And so, like I said, truth is the real world is complicated. Uh, when we dig down into it, it gets complex and unknowable and completely defies what we think or what we know of as logic. So one way to, to kind of put this into words, I guess, is that you look at physics and we look at like Newtonian mechanics. And on some level, like Newton's laws are very clean and, and simple and easily knowable. And you ask probably any physics major, what are, what are Newton's three laws? And they could rattle them off, right? I'm sure Alexa over there, she knows Newton's three laws. Now, on the other side, if you ask, you know, a physics major, she's like, (laughs) she's what, (laughs) what? I won't ask you. I won't say your name because then you'll blink again. Um, But if you ask them about dark matter or quantum behavior or things like that, then we're on a whole other level, right? And the irony is, is that we're talking about the same things at certain times. There's one way to look at something and then you get into the world of quantum mechanics and you're like, man, I don't even know. And, so, and I'm not in, you know, a physics major to even start talking about that. It's bad enough with brain and sight, but you want know, to talk about quantum mechanics, I'm totally lost. Um, and so if the universe we find ourselves in is like this, uh, why would we expect that the way we got here would be any different? Why should it have to be so simple or clean or, well, step one, two, and three, and here's how we got here? I don't think it's a fair uh, expectation. Um, And so reality, in fact, Lewis says, is usually something you could not have guessed. So this is one of the reasons that that Lewis believes in Christianity. It's a religion that you could have not guessed. Now, that's not like a super satisfactory answer. So why do I believe in God? Well, because I wouldn't have guessed that. You know, that's like that's not like a super solid argument, right? Um, It's actually an argument that's given for Jesus's resurrection. It's one of the like kind of the best arguments. It's like, well, you wouldn't have written a story like that. You know, had like women discovering him at a time where women's testimony meant nothing in the court of law and a bunch of other things, you know. But that's not an answer for God, but it is one little thing that, that Lewis gives. It's like, man, this is not how I would have written it or it's not how I would have guessed, you know. Um, again, more of like an aesthetic argument, you could say, uh, that appeals to him. Um, and so he also says that this simplicity versus complexity argument is, is actually a condemnation not only of atheism, but also of what he calls Christianity and water. And what that illusion means is it's basically you take Christianity and then you add a bunch of water to it so you water it down. So you can call it kind of like Christianity light. And that is the, the Christianity that we're talking about in that False Doctrine series. This is a Christianity that is not comfortable asking the, the difficult questions about sin and the nature of God and, and these sort of things. And uh, Winston calls it the Oprahized Christianity, okay? Um, and so Lewis calls it a boy's philosophy. And I think a lot of times this is kind of the, the Christianity that maybe an atheist might argue with it's what a six-year-old or seven-year-old might believe about Christianity. All right, so now we're going to look at something called dualism. And you may be familiar with dualism. If you ever taking like a comparative religions class, you probably talked about dualism. And so that's your blank. So dualism, D-U-A-L-I-S-M. So dualism posits that good and evil are on an equal level and constantly competing with each other. And so one of the earliest religious incarnations of this idea was uh, Zoroastrianism. You like that word, Uh, and that was from ancient Iran. Iran, sorry. Kind of yin and yang. So the idea that there is there's a good force in the universe and there's a bad force in the universe, and they're equal and competing. Okay. Um, And we talked about this in some sense in book one, where we talked about two opposing instincts that are within us. These would be two opposing gods, like in dualism. Okay. So we have good, we have evil, and they oppose each other. But if we have these two things, and this is what Lewis would say again, but Uh, He says that there must be some third term that explains which one of these two is right and which one is wrong. All right, so go with me a second here. So he makes this argument that it's impossible to be bad for its own sake or to make badness one's good. And so he he says this in the book that (coughs) that when people behave badly, one of two things happens. He says they feel guilty because deep down they continue to believe in morality or they get a thrill from breaking the rules. Um, and so once again, they're aware of morality in either case. So either they either do bad and then they're like, man, I shouldn't have done that. Or they do bad because it, they, they realize that they're breaking the rules in a sense. And so what he kind of, to make more sense of what I'm trying to say is that uh, one cannot be ignorant of, of, sorry, one can be ignorant of evil, but one cannot be ignorant of good. So he says that badness is just spoiled goodness. That's your blank. Um, it says that badness or evil is not a worthy opponent for good. It's just spoiled goodness. So I was watching a little video today on Facebook about the color black, and they've created this nanotubule material. It's actually worth more than you see this? It's worth more than gold or diamonds, I think they said. This is just like a little thing. And it's 99.98% black. Yeah, or absent of color. So basically they just take these nanotubules and line them up almost like if you're in a forest and all the trees are so tightly together that they block the sunlight. And so it's like the blackest material on earth. And so you may know this, but the color black isn't a color, it's just the absence of color, okay? And so in the same way that evil is not evil, it's just the absence of good. Or it's the opposite of good. But to have evil and an awareness of evil, you have to understand good. Does that make sense? You could even look at Satan... Uh, who is sort of like the embodiment of evil And he's just a fallen angel So he was once good He's a corrupted version of God's good And then he fell away okay? So you don't have like an evil Satan Without him once having a knowledge of good Or, or you know, an awareness of good Does so that kind of make sense? Yeah. So another way of saying it Is that evil presupposes the existence of good But good does not presuppose the existence of evil It reminds me of like a square is a rectangle But a rectangle is not a square Kind of a thing does this do anything for anyone? I don't know. All right. So, uh, let's, let's square it. Wait. Oh, yeah. So No, a square is a rectangle. It's a special rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. Not necessarily. I mean, you had the whole epistemology thing, so you, you got me on that. But um, that's what I'm good at is basic shapes.
1: <laughs>
0: All the rest of it, nothing. Me and George, George and I. I think Charlie's actually learning shapes right now. A so rectangle is
1: shaped with four straight lines, four sides. Yeah. And a square has four sides that are all equal.
0: Did y'all hear his answer earlier about like the morality thing? <laughs> <laughs> Man, exactly. We'll draw it. Um, so anyway, <laughs> the, the point that he's trying to make, I guess, is that There has to be some awareness of one or the other for for them to exist. All right. So uh, another thing he says is that one of the hard parts about Christianity is our belief that though God is all powerful, there is some sense in which the universe is in the midst of a great civil war. Okay. So things, you know, this good and this evil, they're at battle with one another. So on the one side, it is led by a dark power, a mighty evil spirit. The Bible calls this Satan or the blank here, the adversary. And so we believe that we're living in a part of the universe that is controlled by the enemy So, again, this is wartime, and so Lewis calls it, you know, we're living in enemy-occupied territory, he would say. And so we look at Ephesians 6.12. I don't think that's on here for you guys. But, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, so when we start talking about Satan, when we start talking about spiritual forces and spiritual warfare, there is no doubt that someone who's an atheist or maybe who's like a young believer was like, what? You're talking about what? Like, you, you believe that crap? Like, that's probably what the average answer would be, uh, you know, response. Like, are you bringing up Satan? So Lewis says, he says, you know, do we really mean at this later date to reintroduce our old friend, the devil, hooves, horns and all? And our response has to be that we are not particular about the hooves and horns, But other than that, yes, we do. This is war, and we must be insistent on recognizing and naming our enemy for who he is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us all to be a part of his campaign of sabotage. Every time we meet together, we are meeting with the members of the resistance, and every time we read the Bible, we are listening to the secret broadcast of the truth that is being sent to us here, surrounded by a kingdom of lies. Okay, so that's the end of section two. So we're going to look at the shocking alternative. All right, so this is the chapter where uh, Lewis confronts the concept of free will. So that's your blank there. And I think you know what free will means, but it is the human capacity to choose between good and evil. So a Christian would believe that we have free will, or at least some Christians would, or, you know, how much free will? Well, okay. And so we can argue about God's sovereignty and what that means. I would say that... uh, to me, God's sovereignty would mean that God rules over a thing, but He doesn't control everything. Um, but some might say that God's sovereignty means that He controls uh, every individual action. Um, I don't think that's consistent with the Scriptures, but um, I digress. So, um, so this is what C.S. Lewis says, is that, Now, of course, we will wonder that if this God is all-powerful, how has such a state of affairs come to pass? If the, repell- sorry, if the rebellion is in accordance with his will, then he is a strange God indeed. But if the rebellion is not in accordance with his will, then how can he be all-powerful if the rebellion does indeed exist? Kind of like a more detailed version of, well, if God is good, then why does he allow all this wrong to happen? So he puts it into kind of this analogy. He says that it may be quite sensible for the mother to say to the children, I'm not going to go and make you tidy this schoolroom every night. You've got to learn to keep it tidy on your own. Then she goes up one night and finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying in the grate. That is against her will. She would prefer the children to be tidy, but on the other hand, it is her will which has left the children free to be untidy. Okay. So this is not what she willed, but her will has made it possible. So what she would want is that the kids would learn to clean on their own. Okay? Um and she has given them their free will to decide whether they want to keep things tidy or not. And, of course, in this case, they have not. In the same way that God, um, you know, evil is not what God uh, has willed, but his will has made it possible for evil. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's not like that God wanted evil, so he's like, well, am I'm going to get evil, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to give people free will, and then they'll create evil. No. What, he, what his will is is that people have a choice. And they choose evil. It seems like we're really good at that. Um, And so it is God's will that has made evil possible. Okay. And so God has decided for his own reasons that we'll never understand, but that real true free will is worth the current state of the world. And our rebellion and the consequences of that rebellion is the cost of that free will. And so here's another quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, When Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors uh, this idea that they could be like gods, that they could set up on their own, as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God, and out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human—sorry, uh, all that we call human history: money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery—the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. Uh, in other places, uh, C.S. Lewis kind of refers to that as pride is sort of at the base of all these things. And so it is a pride that started with Adam and Eve and then continued on with the Tower of Babel and so on and so forth that we can be like God or that we can reach God or that we can match God or that we ourselves can be gods. And so when you do that, you have to, in a sense, try and supplant God and you don't need him to provide for you. And so what comes from that is a bunch of bad stuff. All right. And that... Lewis would say and I would agree is that that comes from Satan. These are ideas that he puts into our heads. He like literally put it into the heads of Adam and Eve in the garden. And so then we see the continued effects of that. All right, here's another analogy that Lewis uses. I think I left this off the note sheet, but I love this one is that Lewis describes us as a machine or think of it like a car that's designed by God to run on one fuel. And just as cars run on gasoline and they don't run properly on anything else, people run on God, he would say and without him come to total and complete ruin every single time. And it's why civilization is a history of disaster after disaster. What would you expect from trying to run your car on milk? Well, no, that didn't work, so let's try orange juice this time. And it never occurs to anyone to try gasoline. I think that's like one of the deepest metaphors in here is, is that idea of us trying to make our car run and even maybe make it run better on something different than what we know at our depth to be what we need. Um, and so we'll, we'll try gasoline or we'll try juice or we'll try whatever. Um, and I think we try it because these are our ideas. Like, well, we think this will work better. And it's kind of like a kid. If you tell a kid, like, hey, go go fill this car up and they're going to be, like, pouring, like, invisible, you know, orange juice into it or something. It's like, nah, it's not going to work, you know. In their minds, it's like, well, of course it'll work, you know. But it doesn't. All right. So. Uh, lastly here, what does God do in response to mankind choosing evil when given the choice? So what, what does God do in response to that? Well, he sends a man. And the man claims he is God. And then that man forgives sins and talks as if, as if he has always existed. Because that man was Jesus. And so... Uh, This is where Lewis introduces maybe his most famous argument and maybe his most famous contribution to Christianity and Christian thought, but it's a lord, liar, lunatic argument. And the blank here is the so-called Christian trilemma. So trilemma is just like dilemma, but tri. So two M's, trilemma. And you probably know this, and I'll just read the quote. i summarized summarize it there for you, but... Uh, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said these sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about us being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. All right, so we will discuss that quickly. So we're gonna jump into the perfect penitent. All right, so if we do believe that uh, he is God, we're left with the question, then what is the point of it all? What did he come here to do? I think that's a fair question. So, again, this is what Christians believe, and so some of this will sound super familiar. Uh, The short answer is is that uh, he came to suffer and die. So those are your blanks, suffer and die. Careful over there. (laughs) Um, Now, Lewis says that it had to be Jesus because a perfect sacrifice is the only thing that can save us, and no one who needs the perfect sacrifice is in the position to give it because the reason he needs it is that he is imperfect. And so, like one of us dying wouldn't have been redemptive enough, let's say, it needed to be Jesus. And he goes into great detail over that, and I would just say, read the book. It's great. Um, the crux of the matter is this, is that the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow, and this is a blank, put us right, has redeemed us, has justified us, but put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Christ was killed for us. His death has washed away our sins. And by dying, he's disabled death itself. So he's sort of taken the sting of death away, you could say. Right. And, uh, and and Lewis goes in a lot of discussion as to, you know, this kind of thing of now, especially when he wasn't a Christian. But even now that he is a Christian, he's like, maybe this isn't the way that I would have designed it. He's like, maybe this, this isn't the way that would have seemed logical to me. He's like, well, that doesn't discount the fact that it's true. And I think there's a lot of really good discussion there. And if you haven't read it, I would read it because there's some of these things I can read this. And I'm still like a little uneasy with the idea of like, well, OK, I get that. But why, why did Jesus have to die? Like, why did he have to come? Like, I get it. I know the answers. It's sort of like that with science. Like there's sometimes like you learn something like I get it. But like, but why is it still that way? You know, um, and so I think it's one of those things that it's sort of like complexity of things. Just because it doesn't make sense or just because it doesn't seem like simple or easier the way that we would have done it doesn't mean that it's not that way. All right, so he says that we believe that the death of Christ is the point in history when something absolutely unimaginable shines through from outside into our own world, the inconceivable, the uncreated, the thing from beyond nature, striking down into nature like lightning. And so we may not be able to fully understand it, but we, uh, he says, you know, do we have to understand breathing before it starts helping us not die? The way he kind of says that, so no, it just it just has, it has to happen, um, and so the willing submission and dying to self that has taken place here, also known as here's a blank repentance. Repentance is not what God expects of you before He lets you back in. It is what is uh, is what going back to Him looks like, and so to kind of put that in terms, we think about like the prodigal son, if you're familiar with that story, so. The father has the son who decides to leave and take his inheritance, and he spends it on wild living and sows his oats and then ends up eating pig slop because he's lost all his money. And then he desires to return back to his father. He's fearful that his father won't welcome him, but in fact, his father welcomes him and throws him a big party, right? Kills the and calf and all this kind of stuff. Um, the important thing about this, though, is, is that the father never leaves his home. The father doesn't run after him. The father, though, does wait and it even makes it sound like he's standing there, like waiting for him, you know, as he returns back, um, and he waits patiently, and he welcomes him with open arms. And so Lewis says, this is it asking God to let you back without following the steps He's laid out. Is like trying to go back without going back. It can't be done. So what he's saying is that we can't receive the gifts, the, the gifts of grace and mercy, without repenting. It's not that we. It's contingent upon our repentance per se, but we can't go back to God without repenting if that makes sense. So the prodigal son, you know, without feeling remorse and, and humility, deciding to return back to his father after he's done all this, you know, he's squandered his wealth and all this, he had to repent to get back, but it wasn't the repentance that you know, made his father contingent to give him this party. Does that make sense? Okay, I hope so. All right, so the practical conclusion. This is the end. He uh, says here that the perfect surrender and humiliation were undergone by Christ, perfect because he was God, Surrender and humiliation because he was a man. Now the Christian belief is that if we somehow share the humility and suffering of Christ, we shall also share in uh, his conquest for death and find a new life after we have died and in it become perfect and perfectly happy creatures. Woo! Um, and so he also talks about uh, in our time on earth that we, uh, we can do several things to sort of Uh, get the Christ life, he calls it, or to spread this. He talks about how God is a spiritual being, but that there are, you know, he's obviously created physical things, and he can sort of interface with us through physical actions, and so the blanks here are baptism, belief, and the communion of the saints, and so obviously belief is not a physical thing per se. It's a mental thing or a spiritual thing, but baptism and communion are both physical things, now, he talks about how different religions would rather he focus more on the belief than on the baptism or the communion, and still others would rather he focus more on communion. Um, but those are three things unique to Christianity, you could say, that allow us to spread the Christ life. And these are things that we do as we await the return of Christ and things that are important to Christians. And again, these are, what things, you know, these are things that Christians believe. Um, all right, so let's kind of get into this last little thing is uh, a question of why is God delaying in defeating Satan and bringing us new life in full? Is he not powerful enough to do it now? I think that's a good question. You know, people say, like, you know, come Lord Jesus. Like, I'm ready, you know. Um, and I think that is a good question. Especially when you look at the New Testament and it says that, you know, that Christ is returning soon. And so, you know, they kind of talk about, like, it'll be a matter of days or weeks. And it's like, well, we're still here, you know. I think there's a lot of arguments that be made about that and that time is, what does time mean to someone that exists outside of time, okay, um, but why is he delaying? And so I'm going to outline that with looking at Romans 11. And so in Romans 11, now this is a, is a segment of scripture that kind of becomes like a big arguing point between uh, Calvinists and non-Calvinists and so on and so forth. That's not where we're going with this, but uh, Paul describes the nature of the relationship between the mercy extended to Israel and the mercy extended to the Gentiles, and he says this in verse 29. So if you want to write next to this, Romans 11, 29 through 32, that's what we're going to be looking at, but here it, here it is. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And this is the key in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. All right, so these are higher level concepts here. But uh, So what does it mean that God has decided to have mercy on all? Does it mean that everyone will ultimately be reconciled to God? No. Uh, the context is, is not that. Um, the question is, how then has he extended mercy to all? We'll talk about that first. I want to talk about this. You may have seen this. Um, it was about 10 years ago. There was an internet challenge that made the rounds. It was called the Blasphemy Project. Did you, do you remember that? Okay, so there's a lot of kind of celebrity atheists, famous, famous atheists that were um, a part of this. And they encouraged people to upload videos of themselves speaking the most obscene blasphemies against God that they could think of. This was in order to kind of demonstrate their commitment to disbelief. And thousands of people participate. And it's, it's based on this idea that, that there's an unforgivable sin, you could say, and it's blaspheming the, the Holy Spirit. So a Christian would never say that, right? They would, I'm not going to say that because I might lose my salvation. Um, and it's also obviously sad for a lot of reasons. Um, but here's the thing to think about. Um, is it, Do you think that some of those people, uh, since they made those videos, have maybe, say, like, had a really good week, or maybe have eaten a good steak, or experienced a relaxing day at the beach, or just participated in any of the blessings that God has put on earth for us to enjoy. Uh, and what is that but mercy? Okay? They're literally saying that they don't believe in God to the extent that they'll upload a video to proudly you know, say that to the world, and yet they still enjoy the, you know, God's mercies and God's blessings. Um, but the thing is, is that this type of mercy is not eternal. It has a time limit. Okay? And so, uh, this is the blank, is that God's delay, this delay that we're kind of complaining, what are you delaying about? Why why aren't you defeating Satan now? It's a delay of mercy, um, but it will not last forever. And so that's to say, God's giving you some time, but you better hurry up, because I don't know how much time there's going to be. It's sort of like I got an email from MoviePass, I don't know if you've seen MoviePass, but it's like, you can go see as many movies as you want for like, it was $9.95 a month. Well, they sent me like a $6.95 a month. And I was like, you got to pay for the whole year in advance. So there was like a little bit of, was well, that going to still be around? And the theater's going to take it. But it was like a no brainer. I should have done it. I was like, I'll get to it tomorrow. I went to it the next day. Ah, I was back at 9.95. I was like, shoot, I should have done it. So, Red Pass or Movie Passes Mercy. It was temporary, (laughs) so it only delayed for so long. Um, Here's how C.S. Lewis puts this into words, and this is the final thrust here, but uh, I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly quite realize what it will be like when he does. And so these are people that are saying, God, come back. You know, God, why, why don't you prove yourself? Why don't you show yourself? You know, be careful what you ask for. He says, when this happens, it is the end of the world. And when the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what is the point of declaring you're on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered into your head to conceive comes crashing through, comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us uh, will have any choice left. For this time it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use in saying you choose to lie down when it becomes impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time to discover which side we really have chosen. Ooh, That makes me uncomfortable. And then lastly here, God can make it easier for human, human beings to be good and moral, but instead he gives us the freedom to choose between good and evil. And so it's imperative that we choose good before we are punished for our immorality, and then now is the time to choose. And so uh, we, we don't need to put that off like I did with MoviePass. We need, we need to choose now. That's uh, a lot more important than $3 a month in savings. So, cool. Alright, so thank you for listening in We uh, actually paused in between each section there And had some discussion So it may sound a little weird And that's what we were doing uh, So man, we spent a lot of time with this one There's plenty more that we could have spent time discussing Well, This was great So I, I guess I would just say That if, if you're confused about any of that Go and read the book uh, It's really great um, We'll be back next week And we'll be looking at We have still books 3 and books 4 And so I believe it will be David next week talking about Christian behavior, and uh, then Eric Gentry from Highland Church Christ, he's the preacher there. Um, he'll be speaking on uh, the last book, and we may have those flip flop depending on their schedules, but uh, we got two more weeks together, then we're gonna take a couple weeks off, and then we'll be back in 2018, and we'll, we'll jump in actually with a special lesson on kind of ways to focus uh, your efforts uh, in the new year. This is something that David has done and that I've done this year, It'll be really great and a, and a really unique lesson that will be coming up. So um, I hope you've know, you got a great week that's, uh, that's going on. It's the holiday season. I love Christmas and the season for all that it is. And it just seems like a time where people are generally happier, and I think that's great. And so we've started listening to Christmas music in our office even, and I just think that's great. And hopefully we can um, make Christmas as much about Jesus as possible in the best possible sense of that statement. And I hope you have a great one. So uh, we will see you next week. And uh, again, have a great week.